Hello, everyone. Welcome to Better Health While Aging, a podcast that gives you strategies and information about improving the health and well-being of older adults. We discuss common health problems that affect people over age 60, the best ways to prevent and manage those problems, and we also often address common concerns and dilemmas that come up with aging parents and other older loved ones, like what to do if you're worried about falls or safety or memory or even the quality of a senior's healthcare. I'm your host, Dr. Leslie Kernison. I'm a practicing geriatrician, so that means I'm a medical doctor specialized in geriatrics, which is the art and science of modifying healthcare so that it works better for older people and for their families. Today's episode is a follow-up to the previous episode, episode 32, in which we talked about the top causes of sleep problems in older people. So in today's episode, we are going to talk about how to treat sleep problems. And specifically, we're going to talk about safer and better ways to treat insomnia in older adults. So as I explained in the previous episode, sleep problems are very, very common in older people, and they tend to become more common as people get older. So many seniors are using either prescription or over-the-counter sleep aids to try to manage the problem. But That's in part because often they aren't fully aware of the risks of using sedatives and also because they may not know that there are often better and safer and more effective options for treating their sleep problems, many of which have been proven to work in clinical trials. So in this episode, my goal is to help you understand better ways to manage sleep problems, and here's what we're going to cover. First, I'm going to briefly review the very important thing you absolutely must do before you start or continue to use sedatives or another treatment for sleep problems. And then next, I'm going to review the key things you should know about sedating medications for sleep. They are one of the most popular approaches to treating insomnia, and they do sometimes have a role, but it's important for you to be well-informed about the pros and cons, and so we'll review some of those. And I'll also tell you which medications for sleep are preferred by geriatricians when we do decide that we need to incorporate a medication in the plan. And then I'm going to tell you about several other proven ways to treat insomnia in older adults, all of which are safer than using medications. Finally, in the last part of the episode, I'm going to talk a little bit about managing sleep problems in the context of Alzheimer's disease and other dementias, because I know that's a really common concern and challenge for families who are caring for somebody who has dementia. Now let's get started. So first off, before you start or continue a treatment for sleep problems, what is the key thing you absolutely must do? So the key thing to do is to make sure that you and your doctors have figured out what is causing the sleep problem. I went into detail about this during the last episode, and so I won't spend too much time on this now. But I did want to bring it up because it's just a really, really important step that is often overlooked or incompletely addressed. As we discussed in the previous episode, there are lots and lots of reasons that older people can be experiencing sleep difficulties. And in the long run, to be successful in providing the best management and the safest treatment over time, it's really important to properly figure out what is causing those sleep problems. Is it pain? Is it another physical health condition? Is it depression? Is it a primary sleep disorder, such as a sleep apnea or restless legs? 
So often I find that this step is uh, skipped or undermanaged. Another thing to keep in mind is often people have had sleep difficulties for many years. And so even if you've had an evaluation, it's important to reevaluate things after a certain period of time, either if you're not getting better or because people can develop new and different additional factors that are disturbing their sleep and it's important to detect those. So so you want to regularly ask the doctor, what do we think is causing the sleep difficulties and make sure that the treatment plan is tailored to those. And don't forget that sleep problems in older adults are like many problems. Most of the time they're multifactorial, meaning there can be multiple underlying problems that are causing or worsening the sleep difficulties, and you'll want to identify and manage as many of those as possible. For more about the causes of sleep problems in older adults, you can either listen to that previous episode, or I'll link to an article I have about it in the show notes. Moving on, let's say that now you've had an evaluation for your sleep problems, and it looks like it's primary insomnia, which means you're having trouble falling asleep or staying asleep, and this doesn't seem to be secondary to some other problem like untreated pain or heart problems or depression. This is a very, very common situation that people of all ages encounter and is also very common in older adults. So if you are an older adult, what are your treatment options? Well, let's start by considering what is, again, uh, a very popular approach, which is to use some kind of medication for sleep. So people have a few options when it comes to medications for sleep. One option that people often start with is by using something that is available over the counter at the drugstore, because in the United States, many medications marketed as sleep aids are available in the drugstore, and most of them contain a sedating antihistamine, such as diphenhydramine, which is the main ingredient in Benadryl. Now, these do make people drowsy, and some people feel they help with sleep. But the big downside of these medications is that they are quite anticholinergic. So that means they interfere with acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter that is in the brain and in other parts of the body. So medications like Benadryl interfere with good brain function, and chronic use of anticholinergic medications has been associated with cognitive decline. I don't recommend chronic use of over-the-counter sleep aids, and likewise, you should be careful about using a PM version of a pain medication for sleep because usually the PM is diphenhydramine as well. Otherwise, the sleep medications that people use are prescription medications that they have gotten from their doctor or from another clinician, and those generally fall into one of two categories. One is the category of benzodiazepines. So this includes medications such as lorazepam, brand name Ativan, or temazepam, brand name Restoril. Benzodiazepines also include some that are used for anxiety, such as alprazolam, brand name Xanax. And these are medications that are sedating and relaxing, so they're often used either for insomnia or for anxiety, or sometimes for both. And then there's another class of medications that is similar to benzodiazepines, but is not a benzodiazepine. They're called non-benzodiazepine hypnotics. And those include medications like Zolpidem, brand name Ambien. And those have less of an effect on anxiety, and so they're prescribed almost entirely for insomnia, not so much for anxiety. Both these types of medications 
are considered risky for older adults by geriatricians and other experts. Now, benzodiazepines in particular have been shown to improve sleep somewhat, but we feel that the benefit is in most cases quite outweighed by the risks. And the main risk is one, balance. Benzodiazepines and then also the uh, Z drugs such as Zolpidem, brand name Ambien, have both been shown to be associated with very poor balance the next day. So they're quite associated with falls, and falls are a concern for many older people. And then there's also been concern with benzodiazepines that one people do think less well, both after benzodiazepines and after zolpidem. Uh, that's been studied too, including in younger people. If you test their cognition the next day, it's less good. And then there is some concern that chronic use is associated with cognitive decline or with accelerating cognitive decline. Certainly in people who have already developed Alzheimer's disease or another dementia, it seems to make their thinking worse. And then last but not least, benzodiazepines in particular are habit-forming. People get used to the medication. And so one, their body becomes quite used to the medication. They become unable to sleep without it. If they don't have the medication, they can also feel extremely anxious. If for some reason they get in the habit of taking higher doses of benzodiazepines, then stopping it can provoke a life-threatening withdrawal. And then a certain number of people, usually people who already have some mental health issues or perhaps a past history of substance abuse, people can get addicted in an unhealthy way where it's not just a physical dependence on the medications for sleep, but that they also start craving more and more of the benzodiazepines and they can be abused. So for all these reasons, benzodiazepines are one of those drugs that we in geriatrics love to hate. And, and we don't recommend that people use them for sleep for any extended period of time because the risks generally outweigh the benefit, and especially as seniors get older, if they start to develop more difficulties with balance, with falls, or with memory, then having them on those benzodiazepines is quite problematic. And incidentally, it gets very hard to get people off of those medications at that point too, because if they sleep less or feel a little bit more anxious, which is usually a short-term problem as we taper people down, their thinking can get much worse. So we do recommend people find other ways to manage sleep issues, and I'm going to tell you about those in a moment. But first, I'm going to briefly mention a few other medications that are sometimes used for sleep. So those are one, there are certain antidepressants that are used sometimes for sleep, especially if it seems that the older person might be experiencing some depression. Probably the main one that is used for this purpose is an antidepressant called mirtazapine. The brand name is Remeron. It also sometimes increases appetite, so sometimes it's used in older adults who have been losing weight or had poor appetite. Generally, we feel that it's reasonable to use such an antidepressant, sedating antidepressant, if it seems that the person otherwise is suffering from depression. So that's one medication that you may have come across to help with sleep. And then there is another medication, this is probably the one that we turn to the most in geriatrics, it's called trazodone. It is an older antidepressant, which is sedating. And what we do is we actually use it at very small doses, doses that are way too small to have much antidepressant effect, but that do induce sleepiness perhaps in some people. So for instance, we might start an older person on a little dose of like 25 milligrams at night and perhaps go up to 50. 
And that medication has seems to have less risks in terms of interfering with balance and cognition. But at the same time, any medication that is sedating can increase the risk for falls and can have an impact on brain function. So you really want to use them judiciously in the lowest dose necessary. So those are some of the pharmacological options for treating sleep. And now let's move on to the other options, which are all safer for older adults. So at this time, I would say that probably the best option for treating chronic insomnia in older adults is to turn to something that is called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And that can be abbreviated as CBT-I. So what is cognitive behavioral therapy? It's basically a sort of comprehensive package of kind of coaching in a way. It's coaching a person about their behaviors and then also their thought patterns with the goal of reducing a certain distressing symptom. It can be used for insomnia. It's also been used for anxiety and for depression. So for insomnia, the coaching involves helping people uh, revisit their negative thoughts and anxieties about their about their sleep and how they might be affected by lack of sleep. And then it also includes behavioral coaching that is meant to help promote certain behaviors that are going to make it easier for them to sleep and discourage certain behaviors that interfere with sleep. So cognitive behavioral therapy usually includes coaching on something that is called sleep hygiene. That's the sort of package of better habits for sleep and it includes observing certain common sense rules such as sleep only as much as you need to to feel rested and get out of bed, don't lie in bed worrying, maintain a regular sleep schedule, avoid caffeinated beverages uh, in the afternoon and evening, avoid alcohol near bedtime, don't go to bed hungry, make sure the room isn't too warm and or too cold, and so forth. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has a very good track record. It's actually been covered in the New York Times. And it used to be that the difficulty with this treatment for insomnia was that you had to find a therapist and work with a therapist in person and get your insurance to pay for it. And that was kind of limiting to people. However, over the past several years, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia has become available online. And it's actually been tested in clinical trials and found to be effective. So you can basically get it through a program on the web. It is a program that lasts over um, several weeks. And right now there are two companies that have submitted their programs for clinical trials and been shown to be successful. One of them is called Shutai, S-H-U-T-I, and I'll have links to these companies in the show notes. They have a program that is 16 weeks and costs $135. And then the other company is called Sleepio. And their program is more expensive, but is available for an entire year. Now, if you're interested in one of these programs, you should look into it. It's possible that your insurance might cover it or help reimburse you for it. And I think also for the length of time that the programs last, it's possible that it might come out to be similar to paying your copay for several um, visits. And then it's also occasionally possible to get access to the programs for less money or for free if you enroll in a trial related to them. 
So the downside of cognitive behavioral therapy is that it requires time and effort. However, studies show that people who complete these programs often experience lasting improvements in their sleep and also potentially in their anxiety because there's often an anxiety component that is related to sleep. So that's one very effective treatment for insomnia that I recommend that all older adults consider. Other options. Another option is to consider mindfulness meditation or another type of mindfulness therapy. There was a randomized trial published in April of 2015, which found that this was more effective than just providing people with sleep hygiene recommendations. In general, sleep hygiene recommendations are sound, but by themselves, they have not been found to be very effective. Most people need a little bit more help and structure in implementing the changes. So many people will have difficulty implementing mindfulness on their own. So it's good to look for a program. Senior centers sometimes offer such programs. There are a few available online. There are even apps that can do this. So it's good to have some kind of structure that will walk you through it over several weeks. In the study that I referenced, older adults completed a weekly two-hour, six-session group-based course. And that was shown to improve their sleep. An added benefit of mindfulness therapies is that Uh, Mindfulness has been shown to be beneficial for other aspects of health and well-being. So I'm not sure it's as effective purely for insomnia as doing cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, but it's a nice technique that will probably offer benefits to other aspects of your life and can offer some long-term benefits. Now, another treatment option that people sometimes ask about for insomnia is exercise. And it is often thought of as a treatment for insomnia. And in lifestyle recommendations for better sleep, it's quite common to say, you know, make sure you get daily exercise and also daily exposure to sunshine and fresh air. That said, the actual clinical evidence for exercise as a treatment for insomnia is fairly weak. And probably the effect is kind of modest. Now, there are tons of people who say, oh, I can't sleep unless I exercise. Those are people who are chronic exercisers. Also, bear in mind that, um, that it also seems that in people who are not regular exercisers, it may be necessary to exercise for a few months before you start noticing an improvement in sleep. And in the short term, for people who have chronic ins- insomnia and maybe kind of wound up, exercise can be somewhat stimulating. And there was a very interesting study done a few years ago where a sleep expert reviewed the daily sleep journals of participants in her study and found that many of them actually initially uh, slept a little less well when they started exercising and that it did take several weeks or a few months before they started sleeping better. So I would, of course, not say don't exercise if you have insomnia. Exercise has so many, so many benefits to health and well-being. So it's important to do it. It's important to start doing it if you're not doing much of it and to keep doing it to the best you can. I just don't generally recommend that people think of it as their main treatment for insomnia because it often doesn't have any effect, much of an effect in the short term and takes a while to to provide benefit and is probably less effective than cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So those are three ways to help reduce insomnia that you can consider. And for more information, another option is to get an insomnia workbook. Um, There's one available on Amazon written by a sleep therapist. If you're trying to sort of sort out your, your options, that reviews a lot of the available behavioral techniques and can be a good place to start. 
So now let's talk a little bit about the special case of helping people who have Alzheimer's or another dementia with sleep. So we do know that the brain changes associated with various forms of dementia tend to affect the way the brain sleeps. And in most cases, this causes less deep sleep time, more awake time at night, and can also cause or worsen problems with the circadian rhythm, which is again that inner biological clock that helps you align with a 24-hour day. Furthermore, Lewy body dementia and Parkinson's are also associated with a sleep disorder that's called REM sleep behavior disorder, which can cause violent movements during sleep and can even emerge before thinking problems become substantial. So older adults who have Alzheimer's or another dementia are first of all at risk for developing any of those other problems that cause sleep problems in older adults. So the health problems, the problems with the heart or lungs, or the sleep apnea, and then the brain changes that they experience are also going to make them prone to having sleep difficulties. So it's really not surprising that sleep problems are so common in people with dementia, and they can be very, very difficult, especially for family members or other people who are living with the person with dementia. So what can be done to improve things? First and foremost, it's important, again, to make sure that the sleep difficulties are thoroughly evaluated and diagnosed. So you don't want to just assume, oh, it's just the Alzheimer's and move on. You do want to look and make sure that there aren't any of these other specific conditions that might point the way towards a treatment or management plan that addresses that underlying factor affecting sleep. Beyond that, there are certain general approaches that have been found to improve the sleep of many people with dementia. So these include one, outdoor lights or bright light therapy during the day. This helps signal the circadian clock. So the ideal is to get an older person out for at least an hour per day. And if that's not feasible due to weather or other conditions, then you can try bright light therapy with a special lamp. And there was a study that found that bright light therapy in Alzheimer's patients improved their sleep. Another general principle is to make sure the person has enough daytime physical activity. So you want to make sure they're walking every day, and some studies have suggested that this can improve nighttime sleep in people with Alzheimer's. If they're not able to walk for some reason, then you want to see if you can provide some other form of exercise or activity. You also want to make sure you optimize the environmental cues for sleep. So you want to keep the sleeping environment dark and quiet at night. You want to minimize interruptions during the night. This tends to be more of an issue in nursing homes, which sometimes have staff active at night. In a home environment, you want to try to minimize perhaps the television at night. And then you want to establish a regular routine with a consistent wake-up time. So this can help maintain better sleep, and the ideal is to have a consistent bedtime and wake-up time. But many experts believe it's best to start by focusing on a consistent wake-up time. One research study published in 2005 found that if you trained dementia caregivers, so if you train people, regular people who are caring for a family member who has Alzheimer's or another dementia, if you train them to use these techniques in combination and to also kind of study what's going on with their relative and problem solve a little bit, many of them were able to achieve better sleep of their relative with Alzheimer's disease. Now, what about medications for people? with Alzheimer's who are sleeping badly. It is a really, really common 
request that I have heard from the families of my patients with Alzheimer's, something to help them sleep. And I understand this request because when the person with Alzheimer's doesn't sleep, then often their spouse or adult child or whoever is living with them doesn't sleep. And that is one of the things that breaks family caregivers to not sleep night after night after night. So people often want a medication because they know or they've heard from other people that medications can get the person with dementia to sleep more. And it's true that if you give a person with dementia enough of a sedating medication, people often use either antipsychotics for this purpose or sometimes benzodiazepines, you may be able to get them to stay in bed longer. However, it often makes um, the balance worse, the fall risk worse, it can make the thinking worse, and it's generally a form of chemical restraint. And so we really want to use it as a last resort or for a short period of time in possible. So the things we do do, one, you want to check the person's medications and make sure that they're not negatively affecting the person's sleep. So for instance, if a person with dementia is actually getting a somewhat sedating medication earlier in the day, and we're going to assume that that sedating medication is absolutely necessary or that the benefits outweigh the risks, they might be napping during the day and then more awake and alert at night. Or perhaps there's a diuretic that's being given later in the day instead of in the morning, and that's sort of stimulating them to want to pee during the night. So sometimes just by looking at the other medications they're taking and adjusting those, we can improve sleep somewhat. Otherwise, we do encourage people to one, again, get the sleep problem thoroughly evaluated, and then to try those kind of lifestyle changes that I was mentioning, you know, regular exposure to light, physical activity, trying to create a steady routine. And then people do sometimes ask about melatonin, which is a hormone involved in the sleep-wake cycle. There was one Scottish study that found that two milligrams of melatonin every night improved the sleep of people with Alzheimer's. But in the United States, melatonin is sold as a poorly regulated supplement. And commercially sold supplements are often of questionable quality. So it's something that you can try. As far as we know, it doesn't seem to have as many risks as using another over-the-counter sleep aid or prescription sleep aid, but it may or may not make much of a difference. So to summarize my suggestions regarding treating sleep problems in older adults, one, make sure you've had a good evaluation identifying the underlying causes of the sleep difficulties and working out a plan to address those causes. Two, if primary insomnia seems to be the main problem or an important part of the problem, the best treatment at this time seems to be cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. That is a good option for older adults. Now, We don't yet know how well that can work for people with dementia. You can certainly help them implement some behavioral changes, but they may not be able to change the thinking loops as well as people who aren't cognitively impaired. So that's something to keep in mind. And then lastly, only use medication as a, whether it's over the counter or prescription, as a last resort, ideally for very short periods of time and talk to your physician about how you can minimize the use of medication. If you or someone you know has been taking benzodiazepine medication for sleep, you'll need medical assistance to taper off, but it is possible, a study has shown it's possible, and I'll link to an article I have on that topic called How to Help Someone Stop Ativan. So sleep problems are common and difficult, but if you are persistent and invest 
the time and effort, you can usually improve sleep in a way that is safe and provide some long lasting improvements. And with that, I'm going to wrap up this episode of Better Health While Aging. If you have any questions about something you heard in this episode, you can post it on the show notes page for the episode. I'll also be posting some links to some of the resources that I mentioned in the episode. To find the show notes, visit betterhealthwhileaging.net and click podcast in the main menu at the top. Last but not least, if you've been enjoying the podcast, don't forget to support us by subscribing on iTunes. And if you've already done that, please leave a rating and review. This makes it easier for others to discover our show on iTunes, and I would love for the many people who are interested in health or aging or family caregivers to be able to find it and give it a chance. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr. Leslie Carnison, and I'm looking forward to you joining us for future episodes.